From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. After a consequential Supreme Court term, we hear today from Colorado's Attorney General, Phil Weiser. We're seeing a work in progress that I would call judicial activism, which is a court destabilizing the current legal equilibrium. Weiser vows to protect abortion access in Colorado and defend the state's red flag law. But his plans depend on re-election. Then, Ken Arwe is CPR's new podcast sharing stories of identity and culture. Like, I knew about Putke. Uh, I hadn't had chicha yet. And I was just like, this speaks to my heritage. Whatever you do, I support it 100%. Meet a brewer who connects his career to his heritage. Do you know it's time to say goodbye to your car, but you just want to be sure it goes somewhere it'll be truly appreciated? Donate it to CPR. And then, just like that, your car has new purpose, helping fuel all that it takes to run Colorado Public Radio. Your car has been good to you. Now let it be good to CPR. Find out how easy it is to donate your car on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. After the fall of Roe v. Wade, Colorado has become something of an island when it comes to preserving abortion access. The state attorney general says he'll fight to preserve that access, including for patients who come from out of state. We wanted to hear from A.G. Phil Weiser after a consequential Supreme Court term and as the state battles fentanyl. Attorney General, thank you for being with us. Ryan, it's always a pleasure. Anti-abortion activists are looking for ways to prevent patients from crossing state lines to access care. Missouri, for instance, is considering a bill that would penalize organizations and doctors helping people travel out of state. Since Colorado stands out in the region for its access, what role do you see for yourself as attorney general? And and I'll just note that uh, recently the governor ordered that Colorado would not cooperate with criminal or civil investigations for actions that are fully legal in our state. What's your role, though? Our role is on multiple fronts. The fundamental point is we will defend the right to reproductive health care here in Colorado for Coloradans, for those coming to our state and for doctors practicing medicine. We are aware, as has been threatened, that some states may say, we're not gonna allow patients to travel. We'll criminalize that activity, or even try to criminalize doctors in Colorado. We will fight them all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I would note Justice Brett Kavanaugh in his concurrence underscored the interstate right to travel remains, and that patients have a right to access healthcare here in Colorado from wherever they come from. So would you imagine your office representing a patient who had come from another state for an abortion here. You you could envision that occurring? Our role would not be representing the patient as their personal lawyer. Our role would be representing the state of Colorado's sovereign interests in reproductive health care, which means if there's litigation, we could get involved in that litigation to defend Colorado's rights not to have interstate travel infringed. This is something we haven't seen before. It would be like Nebraska saying we're going to criminalize someone who goes to Colorado and buys and uses marijuana in Colorado. That's a legal activity in Colorado. That's the interstate right to travel. 
Do you think the governor's executive order provides you as a separately elected attorney general? Does it provide you the a sort of protection that you're looking for? What it means when the governor has this executive order, it's a statement of policy. And my comments before and after that executive order underscore our alignment on this core policy. When someone accesses an abortion because maybe it'll save their life, maybe they were raped, maybe the mental anguish of bearing a child against their will is too much, whatever the reason, that is protected in Colorado under our Reproductive Health Equity Act. My commitment is to enforce that law. The governor's commitment is to that law. We're aligned on that. And we recognize how important this is, and we recognize how much trauma is going to be happening in other states where people don't have these rights. What do you make of the fact that Colorado uh, is becoming something of a, a safe haven in this regard? I mean, certainly those who oppose abortion and who live here might think that that's just not what they want their state known for. Colorado, a few years ago, decided a question whether or not to ban abortions after 22 weeks. 59% of Coloradans rejected that abortion ban and listened to the stories that were told during the course of that conversation. Our legislature passed a Reproductive Health Equity Act, which makes it very clear that any local effort to curb a woman's right to choose violates Colorado law. That means my office and the state has an interest here that we have to enforce, even if that means taking the local government to court. If people in Colorado don't like any of that, they have elections. Those who are anti-choice could win elections, could try to change public policies. But just as I noted, a few years ago, there was a abortion ban on the ballot. It was turned back 59 to 41 percent. So reproductive freedom in Colorado is clearly supported. And it's unique because we're the first state who liberalized abortion access in the 1960s. It was a bipartisan effort back then. Dick Lamb as a state legislature and Governor John Love. Colorado has consistently protected reproductive rights and will continue to do so. When the Dobbs ruling came down, you released a statement calling the decision a momentous mistake. Uh, And indeed, you vowed to fight to protect this law that was passed just in the last session, the Reproductive Health Equity Act. I want to note as well that you once clerked for the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Given how this decision came down, do you wish she would have stepped down early? Because I have a personal relationship for her, it's hard for me to second guess her personal decisions There are a lot of dynamics that contributed to this court being composed the way it is. One might think about Merrick Garland's putative appointment, possible appointment that was scuttled in an unprecedented move. One might think about Amy Coney Barrett being rushed through in the last minute in a move that was uncomfortable to say the least. Justice Ginsburg's untimely death obviously is part of what got us here, but I have such respect for her that I have a hard time personally second-guessing her decisions. What I will say about her legacy living on, she made a powerful point that stays with me. The right to an abortion and the right to terminate a pregnancy enables women to have control over their bodily autonomy, over their reproductive health system, and men don't have to confront that issue. If you force women to bear children against their will, they're in an unequal position that 
problem from an equality standpoint, from a 14th Amendment equal protection standpoint, was her central argument. I believe that argument and her legacy will prevail even if she wasn't alive to defend it herself. Well, this is a good segue to what we heard or read from Justice Thomas in his concurring opinion, uh, that other precedents like contraception, same-sex marriage, the ban on sodomy laws, that these should be up for reconsideration, uh, despite pushback, by the way, from Justice Alito. Do you think that Dobbs represents a threat to those decisions, similarly based on this notion of substantive due process, right to privacy, 14th Amendment? Ryan, for anyone who reads the majority opinion, Thomas's warning is not hypothetical. It's game on. The logic of the opinion, the methodology used in the opinion, if applied, would have the results that Justice Thomas's promises. The challenge for, I'll use Brett Kavanaugh as the example, because in Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, he says, don't worry, those things aren't going to happen. The challenge is, how do they square this circle? Because there's this argument, oh, abortion is not an enumerated right in the Constitution. Well, neither is contraception. And then if you take this originalist idea that rights are only as they were originally in the mind of those who passed the provision, protecting sexual orientation, protecting gender identity was not in the minds of the framers of the 14th Amendment. So marriage equality would also be on the chopping block. This Supreme Court has put themselves on a path that would, as Justice Thomas predicted, naturally undermine a series of freedoms that have been established. Now, there are those concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh suggesting it's not going to happen. I'm going to be eager to see how the court justifies not applying this methodology. And my view is the end game here will be to reaffirm Roe versus Wade, because I don't believe they can come up with a principle that protects contraception, but doesn't protect abortion access. Wait, what? You think that the court is going to reaffirm Roe? Not this court, but I believe that protecting reproductive rights is a basis of protecting equality, a basis of protecting bodily autonomy. It is inconsistent with the principles that we have relied on, control over your reproductive health system, to deny people this right. And when the American people are seeing the outcome of this, there's going to be a move to defend Roe. Now, How will this happen? Will it be a federal law that will get passed? Will it be a later Supreme Court? But I don't believe this project that this court launched, an attack on access to abortion, is sustainable given what it's going to mean for people, given that a whole series of issues like in vitro fertilization or the use of an IUD, there's going to be a lot of disruption to people's lives. There's going to be a lot of legal uncertainty in litigation. And ultimately, I believe the American people will stand up and ultimately their voice will be heard. But isn't that what the justices want? In other words, part of the argument here was that by making the road decision, the court denied the people and the states the opportunity to decide this for themselves. I think you just made the point. If your principle is the Constitution and constitutional judging doesn't protect freedoms, then access to birth control, access to marriage equality, access to abortion should not be protected under the Constitution. If that is your argument, we're back to Justice Thomas's prediction, all of those rights would be rolled back. My 
argument is ultimately our constitutional rights bear a public function, which is they protect what the public wants to be protected. We, we saw Robert Bork, by the way, didn't get on the Supreme Court because he said out loud that he thought Griswold versus Connecticut, protections of contraceptive services and birth control would not be protected in his view. Subsequent justices went ahead with what we now can see as somewhat of shadow boxing or uh, somewhat of a play, which is, oh, Roe versus Wade is settled law. There's nothing to worry about here. They get on the court and they then proceed to unsettle it. I know a lot of people are unsettled by that. I will just say that was the lesson that people took from Robert Bork is we can't say it out loud. Justice Thomas absolutely in his concurrence said the quiet part out loud, which is we're going to overturn all these rights and freedoms. That is going to, I believe, have repercussions. And my prediction is the American people will not stand for that. And I, for one, will be fighting to protect all those rights and freedoms. Our guest is Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser. After a break, his thoughts on other big decisions from the Supreme Court this term. Plus, an update on the money flowing into Colorado from settlements with opioid manufacturers, how it all connects to fentanyl. Weiser, a Democrat, is seeking re-election this year. We've invited his Republican opponent, John Kellner, to join us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. I'm Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Highlands Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. After a far-reaching Supreme Court term, we're hearing from Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser. He's up for re-election this year. There were indeed other big decisions on climate policy, school prayer. Uh, Is there perhaps another ruling you think has a disproportionate effect on Colorado and that you're uh, planning to respond to in some way? One of the challenges, Ryan, with this court is we're seeing a work in progress that I would call judicial activism, which is a court destabilizing the current legal equilibrium. The Second Amendment is obviously on our minds after we continue to see horrific gun violence that no other nation sees. In Colorado, we have continued to pass gun safety measures, most recently a red flag law. There are people who want to attack our gun safety protections like our red flag law, and they will seek to use the latest Second Amendment decision as a source of their legal attacks. Um, I'm going to defend gun safety protections like our red flag law, like our background check law. I very much worry about the Supreme Court's activist trend right now. The, the case that you mentioned about climate EPA was really breathtaking in withdrawing power from the EPA that the plain text of the Clean Air Act seems to provide. We're also in a case in the Supreme Court right now about the Clean Water Act, where Colorado relies on the EPA protecting clean water we're advocating an approach to that issue that we believe is sensible and appropriate. But this Supreme Court has been incredibly ambitious and aggressive, and we've got to be prepared. Is it speculation at this point, or do you have concrete evidence that people may want to use the New York gun ruling as a way to undermine the red flag law in Colorado? There has yet to be a case attacking our red flag law based on that new precedent. But here's the reality we've seen in Colorado. The gun safety measures like our magazine capacity limit have been attacked in court. And we know that we have to defend those laws. We have to enforce those laws. 
The red flag law in Colorado, I believe, has been a real success. There's been reporting recently that a number of those counties that were skeptical about it have, in fact, used it and have seen it as an effective law enforcement tool. We've been working to provide guidance, training on how to use it. I, I worry about this happening. I don't know for sure that we'll see a, a, a attack based on the Second Amendment, but we're going to be prepared. You've used this phrase, judicial activism. It, you know, it's something I hear across the political spectrum. Doesn't it just mean a ruling you disagree with? When I use the phrase judicial activism, I'm referring to a judicial decision that is adventuresome and aggressive beyond what is appropriate and necessary to decide the case at hand. In this Dobbs case, the court reached well beyond what was before the court, the Mississippi law. And that's what Chief Justice Roberts hit hard in his concurrence. He made plain that the majority didn't need to go as far as it did, didn't have a record before them, didn't have a case before them. They wanted to go ahead and strike down all restrictions. And that type of aggressive conduct was also at issue in this EPA case, where there's not even a regulation before the court, but the court wanted to go out of its way to say the EPA lacked this power. Usually courts make their best decisions one case at a time, looking at the case before them, thinking hard and rigorously about what are the practical consequences. But sometimes courts may have an ideological commitment to a certain result, and they skip right over that because they know where they're going and are less attuned to the specifics before them. Before we go, I'd like to talk just briefly about opioid settlements. Colorado is set to receive $3 million, I think it is, from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals, in addition to $400 million from a settlement uh, with Amerisource Bergen Cardinal Health, McKesson and Johnson & Johnson. Uh, do you imagine that money helping combat fentanyl addiction? And if so, how? We are in the third wave of an opioid crisis. The first wave was prescription pills. People got addicted. There's all sorts of painful stories behind it. The second wave was heroin. Cartels in Mexico particularly realized there was a population who were now addicted and that they could say, hey, go to heroin. It's cheaper than getting prescription pills. We're in the third wave right now. They're counterfeit pills in many cases that are based with fentanyl. And you have different populations, those who are struggling with addiction who go to these pills, or those people who don't even know that they're getting fentanyl. They may think it's a real oxycodone pill, but it's actually fentanyl. With this money, we can have more education and awareness to save lives. One pill can kill is a message everyone needs to understand. And these pills are being marketed in all sorts of ways to make them attractive to kids. Our office will do a study about the abuse of social media platforms to traffic these pills. We also want this money to provide more drug treatment recovery because those who are struggling with addiction and getting fentanyl, knowing it's fentanyl, are playing Russian roulette. There are people dying today struggling with addiction on wait lists because they haven't gotten the treatment they need. The money we're getting out won't be enough to get us all the treatment we need. We have estimates vary 25-ish percent of the total treatment we need, but we need a lot more treatment because right now too many people are dying, too many people are in jail because they're struggling with addiction. I just want to put a finer point on something you said, Phil Weiser. You draw a line between fentanyl addiction today and the overprescription, the calculated overprescription of opioids years ago. Yes, it's very important to note this. If you trace back individual cases, you will hear stories. I had back pain. I was prescribed these opioids. I took them for 90 days. I became addicted. My doctor cut me off. I got prescription pills illegally through some other channel, but it was expensive. It was just cheaper to get heroin. 
Today, if you're buying heroin, chances are it's actually fentanyl because that's what the cartels are now shipping, this potent fentanyl drug. And so there are people today who are using fentanyl whose addiction started with prescription pills. I note that a federal judge in West Virginia has sided with three drug makers in a lawsuit over the opioid crisis. Uh, And in, in this ruling, the judge says the conduct of the companies could not be connected to the harm. Uh, I suppose that could affect some future settlements, cases. Quick comment before we go. Sure thing, Ryan. We've locked in a lot of settlement funds already. So this litigation is not directly bearing on the money we're getting. The idea that drug companies, take Johnson & Johnson, for example, or Purdue Pharma, didn't know what they're doing is just wrong. We led this case against McKinsey. And one of the conditions of the settlement was McKinsey making plain, releasing documents. How did we get here? The New York Times recently reported from the documents that we mandated be disclosed, and they told the story. McKinsey and Purdue Pharma knew what they were doing. They were pushing out drugs, knowing that there were efforts to curb their distribution, but they were worried about profits, not about people. That's why we've held these companies accountable. And those companies who put their profits, particularly short-term profits, over people's lives, that's just wrong, and we'll continue to hold them accountable. Thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure. Colorado's Democratic Attorney General Phil Weiser. He's seeking re-election, and we've invited his Republican opponent, John Kellner, onto the program. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the question, Kien are we? I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. There are marathons, there are ultra-marathons, and then there's the Hard Rock 100, a 100-mile-long race that makes runners deal with high altitude, life-threatening weather, river crossings, and sometimes dangerous wildlife. The run starts and ends in Silverton. You'll go over major mountain passes more than a dozen times. You'll also summit a 14er for an elevation change of more than 66,000 feet in all. The first rule of the Hard Rock 100, no whining. You have 48 hours to finish. The record, 23 and a half. And if you get to the end of the course, you must kiss a stone painted with a ram's head. And only then have you finished. There are four other ultramarathons in the mountains. Do at least three of them and the Hard Rock 100 and you'll complete the Rocky Mountain Slam. Something only 60 people have accomplished. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. Ken Arwi is CPR's new podcast about what it means to be Hispanic, Latino, and Chicano. Individual stories woven together about community, culture, and heritage. The project is near and dear to May Ortega, who is its host and co-creator. And May, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Congratulations on the launch. And we're going to listen to the premiere in just a bit. Uh, But first, say a few words about what this podcast means to you, you know, not just professionally, but personally. Yeah, I mean, this show came, the first thoughts of it came about around two and a half years ago, right before the pandulce, as some Latinos call the pandemic, started. And it just, now that it's real, it is amazing to see the reaction. The reason we wanted to create this show was to celebrate the joy of being a Latino and the things that make us who we are, you know, like the things we have in common, but the things that make us each different from each other as well. 
And it's just been wonderful. I mean, we, we've interviewed people from around the country, including a lot of people from Colorado. And I have learned so much, not only about my own culture, but about other kinds of Latino cultures because we are all so different. And yet during a lot of these interviews, I would be like, oh my gosh, me too. Oh my gosh. You know, like someone from Nicaragua who's first generation American would be like, oh yeah, this is this. And I could relate to that. But there are other things that I had no idea about their cultures, you know, and well, give me an example been, of that. Something you sure. learned. So one episode, we talked to the general manager of a minor league team. He's Nicaraguense, first generation, born, raised um, in East L.A., and then he moved to Oregon for work. And I didn't know that in Nicaragua, baseball is the big sport. I thought it was soccer. I assume for most of Latin America, because I'm Mexican-American, it's very similar to my experience. But of course, I've learned very quickly, not at all. Everyone's experience is extremely different and in such fascinating ways. Uh, Kian Arwi is, of course, a combination of Spanish and English. Who are we? Mm -hmm. What is the significance of naming the podcast in both languages? It meant a lot to me that we kind of give a sort of nod to the ni de aquí, ni de allá, which means that you don't feel like you belong here or over there, which, you know, you don't feel like you are an American, but you also don't feel like you are like me. I don't feel like I'm a Mexican because you're first generation. It kind of feels like you have a foot in both worlds. And what comes with that a lot of the time is that you feel like you're trying to be American because you were born and raised here, but you're also trying to stay loyal to your family and your parents who brought you here and who like raised you to have these types of beliefs and traditions and everything. So Spanglish is a really big part, you know, of being first generation. Even if you don't speak Spanish fluently, you know some things here and there. And so we wanted to kind of give a nod to that by doing a kind of bilingual Spanglish title. When you were growing up, May Ortega, did you hear voices and storylines like this? Or in a way, is this podcast satisfying a craving for something you wanted more of? Exactly. There's a lot of stories out there, at least when I was growing up, and I think still now, because, you know, I have a background as a reporter, um, where I would cover or read or hear stories about Latinos. And it was usually like from an immigrant uh, type of standpoint, a political immigration thing. You know, they came over here and overcame the odds and pulled themselves up by the boots straps and oh my gosh they're amazing for accomplishing so much and hardship etc cetera, etc cetera. and yes that is true those stories are valid and are very people need to know those things are happening but i mean a very frank way to say it is we hear white people's boring stories all the time you know and we don't hear everyday stories about latinos very often it's usually something that's like a tremendous thing that someone overcame or someone who's really down in the dumps and you're just checking on how badly they're doing mm. so i really wanted to have something that says this is joyful, I can relate to this, you know, I have a good life, I want other people who are like me, I want to know that they have a good life too, and that, you know, I don't have to feel guilty for the life that I have, and I have in common more than I thought with more people than I thought. In the first episode, again, which we're about to hear, we meet John Baron. What stood out to you about his story? So there's a lot that stood out to me about his story, but chiefly it's that his job, he is the assistant brewer at a Denver brewery called Dos Luces, that's on Broadway, and Dos Luces represents the two 
main drinks that they have there, which are chicha and pulque. And those are both drinks that were made in ancient times by like Mayans and Incas and all these people. So John is creating these drinks himself for a living. And he's Latino. So, I mean, he wasn't, I think, intending to take on this work to connect to his heritage better. Hmm. But that's the way it shook out. You know, he's like learning how to not only brew, which really fulfills him, but to brew something that really means a lot to him and to his parents, too. And just really connecting to who he is and to his family through it. It's beautiful. Well, thanks for joining us, May. Let's listen to this premiere of Can Are We? Yay! <laughs> John Baron is well known for making some of the most unusual beverages in town. But these are really good. How fun. So you had a hand in making all of these? Every single one. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Are you so proud? Yeah, man. It's like, <laughs> it's like being an artist and watching somebody like appreciate your painting, you know, yeah. or being up in a gallery or something. In a city where small, quirky craft breweries are part of the local culture, a way of life for a lot of people, John makes drinks that are truly unique, like an original piece of art. And this isn't your mom's average ale, but it could have been your bisabuelitas. From Colorado Public Radio, this is Yen Arwi exploring what it means to be Latino or Hispanic or Chicana or however you identify and diving into the beautiful things that make us who we are. This is the first episode of a season full of stories about things like baseball and dancing and houseplants. I am so excited to share these stories with you. I'm May Ortega. This time, we'll hear about a man trying to keep up with his siblings and make his parents proud. But when he finds himself where he thought he wanted to be, he realizes something is still missing. And it takes returning to his heritage to find it. John Baron's family is from a familiar place for me. So my dad is from Matamoros, Tamaulipas. My dad is from Matamoros. That's That's tight. crazy. <laughs> that's so tight. So, really? Yeah. Oh, my so, gosh. That's wild. Yeah. Oh like, to this okay. day, I still have, like, a lot of family sitting right there in Brownsville, Laredo, McCallum. Yeah. I'm, yeah I'm, I moved here from the Rio Grande Valley. So, yeah. Oh, my God. That's and, crazy. John is the youngest in his family by many years. His sister and brother are 13 and 8 years older than him. John's parents migrated from the Rio Grande Valley through the Midwest and eventually put down roots in Denver. And that is where we both live now. Señor y Señora Barón always encourage their kids to be ambitious and pursue their passions. As a kid, John watched his siblings take that encouragement to heart through their careers. My sister is the Associate Dean of Inclusion for Metro State University. What blows my mind is that, like, my sister always gives me grief and tells me that I ride her coattail of her being a doctor. <laughs> and she set that bar high, and I seen all that and was there for it. And outside of her, we have my brother. He's with a group called Stay Tuned. He goes by Main Rock. He's been performing in Denver that I know of since... 
Oh gosh, 2001, 2002. Damn, almost 20 years. Yeah, like I, I trip out and see like all these walls covered with posters and concert tickets of things that he's done and people that he's introduced me to and like I've watched him headline and perform with some of like my favorite acts. An associate dean at a university, a local hip hop star, and John, the baby of the family. As John approached adulthood, his parents put pressure on him to rise high, like his siblings, to find something that could bring him success and fulfill his passions. Easier said than done. First-gen kids like John and I have an extra strong drive to make our parents proud. We have to let them know their toil and sacrifice were worth it, right? Growing up, John watched his parents use their hands to make a living. John's mom was a seamstress and a migrant farm worker. I, I think that all the stuff that my mom has like tried to teach me from the time that she was a migrant worker and seeing like all the vegetables and plants and mm. it's always cool to go with her and like see different parts of the garden and like mm. that's one big thing that she loves. I know like her purple hydrangeas are the biggest thing to her heart and like I've sat there with her in the garden transplanting irises and uh, going through just taking the time when we travel to ask her like what do you like about these it's it's a big thing you know John's dad was a construction worker who loved to repair old cars my memories of him like he was always super tired when he did get home he was up so early in the morning to go do concrete work it wasn't easy for him and I remember when he'd get home, I'd take off his boots and everything, but I didn't really have experiences with him. I wish that I had more opportunities to sit there and hold the light for him under a hood. Yeah. It would have been the world to like learn how to work on classic cars and yeah, yeah, yeah. so. Oh man. The Baron parents did not want their kids to be blue collar workers like they were. They wanted their kids to have the best chance to be successful and more. So they did everything they could to give them an advantage, even down to picking John's name. Because your name is, is no, John. It is. Uh, on my birth certificate, it says John Joe. It doesn't say Juan Jose. And those are my grandfather's names. But the real reason being is that flat out, they wanted me to be Americanized. I wasn't supposed to be Juan Jose because my parents seen my complexion and they knew that I would always have the passing is white. And because of that, they wanted my life to be a little bit easier. After graduating from high school, John wanted to make something of himself, just like his siblings. So he went to college, but he hadn't figured out a passion to pursue. And paying to learn something you might not even like is rough. So, to his parents' disappointment, John decided to drop out of college. He wasn't sure what to do next, so he leaned into the work that had paid his bills over the last few months. I pulled out of college, and I knew I was working in kitchens at the time. And I loved working in kitchens, whether it was just food running or being a bar back. I started learning a lot more about it, and I, my first gig was as like a barista and moving up from there uh, working as a food runner. 
John's parents were worried. This brother of a brilliant educator and a popular musician worked in the service industry. John coasted through the Denver restaurant industry for several years, bouncing around from coffee shops to downtown bars and the convention center. He didn't hate it, but he wanted more. John was a hard worker, and other people started to notice, including a friend in the craft beer industry. Guy sees me and he says, yeah, man, uh, you work really hard in everything you do. And he's like, I think you should brew. And I say, I really wish I could get into that, but that sounds like something I need a degree for. I, I don't know that I could just be jumping into classes right now. He's literally like, got my hands full, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, okay, dude. He's like, but I think you'd enjoy it. And that friend encouraged John to volunteer at Odyssey Beer Works for a few hours a week to teach him the ropes. One of the first things this son of a mechanic noticed was all the intricate machinery that made the brewing process possible. And so I'm learning all these little things about brewing that I need to know. Mm. This is a TC clamp. These are the different gaskets you need to know. The terminology and technology. Okay, cool. These are the different tanks. Oh, okay. John's interest was captured real quick. He dove into learning everything he could about brewing. And Denver's a good place for that. It's a city famous for its breweries. John went to the local microbreweries, tasted their wares, and developed opinions about what worked and what didn't. One of his favorites was a brew house called Dos Luces. That is where I met him for this conversation. Yeah, when Dos Luces originally opened, I was here for their opening day. Oh, uh, as like a I, fan? Yeah, as oh, a fan. okay. Dos luces means two lights, which represent the two flagship fermented drinks that the brewery produces. Pulque, a drink made by the Aztec and Mayan people of Mesoamerica. And the second is chicha, a drink made from purple corn by the Inca of South America. Like, I knew about pulque. Uh, I hadn't had chicha yet. And I was just like, this speaks to my heritage. Whatever you do, I support it 100%. Experiencing pulque and chicha at Dos Luces ignited and expanded John's imagination about all that brewing could be. Then, a cidery around the corner from his apartment noticed his expertise and offered him a role in sales. I was loving it at that point, and low-key, I started to have the ability to influence the ciders we were making, which I was like, that's kind of cool, you're giving me that... (laughs) You're giving me that flex? I was happy with my brew job. Working at the cidery was different than any job John had had before. Not only was he working hard and being useful, but for the first time in his career, John was using and growing his knowledge in something that he was actually interested in. He felt fulfilled by the challenge. But... Something was missing. And soon, fate intervened. That's after the break. You wait for the bus, the weekend, and you wait for your morning coffee to finish brewing. But you don't have to wait to get live news from CPR. Just come to CPR.org or listen live on the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. 
We're listening to the premiere of CPR's new podcast, Kiana Are We? Host and creator May Ortega has introduced us to John Baron. He was starting to find his way in the brewing business when something unexpected happened. After almost two years at the cidery, John Baron had become confident in his knowledge of brewing. And then came the news. They ended up buying a orchard in southern Colorado. Penrose is super far. And so it was like, Andy, I love you. I really, really love you, but I cannot go out to Penrose like that. And it sucks. And by super far, he means a hundred miles away. In a snap, John's blossoming career in fermented drinks went flat. John still had bills to pay, so he went back into working in restaurants. And not long after that, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. The restaurant industry in particular cut 2.5 million jobs. John was out of work and had no prospects. He almost lost everything. I was so just in shock and on if I hadn't, like, had some sort of savings, I probably would have lost my apartment. Then, at his lowest point, the phone rang. A couple weeks into the pandemic, Judd gives me the phone call of like, hey, um, I don't know if you have the availability, but can you come in on Monday? Um, I think I have a job for you. And by Judd, he means Judd Bellstock, the owner of John's favorite brewery, Dos Luces. Remember the one that makes chicha and pulque? You know, I was like, I'm interested. Um, what's the position? He's like, I'd like you as my assistant brewer. What'd you think when he said that? I was like, oh, I've never, <laughs> I haven't updated my resume in so long. <laughs> John got the job. And now, two years later, he welcomes me to the Dos Luces tap room as a brewer. It's a storefront space with a few tables near the entrance. You get a warm vibe when you come in. There's papel picado hanging from the ceiling, Latin American art on the walls. There are plants everywhere. Love that. The rest of the space is where the brews are made. A center walkway to the back door is flanked by these huge tanks filled with fermenting chicha and pulque. John was eager for us to try their signature drinks, so he brought over a flight of samples for me and my producer to try. Uh, starting from the handle, we have our chicha inti. Okay, this is like an orange-ish. Yeah, the orange color to it is really pretty, um, but this would be your traditional Incan or Mayan. Ooh, that's very fruit. Mm -hmm. I'm not good at describing taste. <laughs> it's very fruit, like, no, not peach. Peach? No, impossible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, uh, that's really um, the flavor from the corn, in all honesty, that you're getting. There's it tastes a little like a bit juice. of. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Uh, what is it? I hear in ruler parts of Southern America and so on, a lot of the bottles that you'll see kids running around with are really filled with chicha. <laughs> How they get their kids to go to sleep For a little faster. Kids. Yeah. 
John told me that in Inca society, women are the brewers. And the process of how they do it is really cool. They chew up the purple corn because their saliva produces a special enzyme that starts the fermentation. Dos Luces' other drink, pulque, has deep history in Mexican and Aztec culture, with several myths associated with the maguey plant that it's made from. So uh, this is going to be our pulque metzli, the house pulque. Uh, this is our traditional sour. This is what the Aztec would be drinking right before a sacrifice or something like this. Wow. All right. Let me tell you about how special this drink is. One of the myths of pulque is that of the Aztec god of wind, Quetzalcoatl. After providing the people with the gift of corn, he realized that although the people's bellies were full, their hearts were not. They didn't sing, dance, or rejoice in any way. They needed something else, something to bring them joy and bliss. So Quetzalcoatl endeavored to find the beautiful goddess Mayahuel, who possessed a gift that he knew would bring joy to the people. But she was hidden away in a far corner of the cosmic heavens, trapped by her evil grandmother. Mayahuel longed for passion, romance, and for rescue. The wind god converted himself into a feathered serpent and flew up into the heavens in search of Mayahuel. When he finally found her, she agreed to escape with him and share with her people the gift of the maguey plant. Its leaves were used to create paper and dressings for wounds. The fibers used to create carpet and hammocks. And from the sap, del corazón de Mayahuel, they created pulque. Now, centuries later, Dos Luces is using modern equipment to make chicha and pulque, so they don't need to chew the corn in the traditional way. Rest easy, there is no spit in your beer. But understanding how to recreate those ancient techniques and finding ways to tweak the tastes for modern palates is part of what John loves about his work. Uh, just to give you kind of a rundown of what it is... Um, the first vessel that you'll see over here is going to be our HLT, which stands for hot liquor tank. Um, up there, our control panel uh, controls our rake and our second tank right here. Now, John's not only become a respected brewer, but he's doing it in a way that speaks to who he is and offers him a future beyond those luces. I never in my life would have thought that I was going to be a professional brewer. And I'm really proud to be here. That's yeah. for sure. Come a long way. Yeah. I, I would proudly open my own brewery, but there's plenty more I have to learn. And I remember bringing that point up to Judd. And I said, you know, one of my cousins said, oh, I should open my own. <laughs> and he's like, you know what, John? I'll be really proud when you do. And I'll be there for your opening day. But you got to promise me that you're going to open a pulqueria or a chicharia. And that was a moment where I was just like, you know that's the only kind of brewery I'm going to open. Quit playing with me, Jeff. Uh, you don't have to I, tell me. Yeah, you don't got to tell me twice. Uh, so, yeah, maybe one day. I look forward to that. But in time, I still have a lot of learning to do here. 
Finally, John's found what was missing at the cidery and all the jobs before that, a way to connect to his heritage. It's transcended into other parts of his life. Today, John insists that people pronounce his last name their traditional way, despite his parents' attempts to anglicize it. They would try to let people say, oh, that's John Joe Barron, and I don't, I don't allow that. I, I'm proud of being a Baron, and I think that that's important. You should definitely take pride in saying your name is Garcia, not Garcia, or... Ortega. Ortega, exactly. Like, (laughs) those little things, like, you know, you got to take pride in who you are. I I think the biggest thing is to live for your last name, not to live for your first. I don't care that people remember that I'm a brewer or anything, but I care that my family members are going to be as strong as I am to find pride in their last name. And hopefully it continues. And his newfound passion has also helped him feel more comfortable with another part of himself, being the little brother. I like it because we all created our own paths. I was always the mischievous one. And so like helping <laughs> make a beer called Travesura. Or, nice. <laughs> love yeah, that. Little things love like that. that. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, maybe we were, maybe I was a little mischievous in my lifetime, but look at what came out of it, you know, and you can still be a professional and you can still do all these things that are, you know, important to the community. What else can you tell me about how your parents feel about what you do now? Oh, it's great. The um, the moments where, like, my dad just looks at me and, like, he, like, he'll hold my shoulders and be proud. Like, mira mi putquero. I'm like, huh? Oh. Yeah, what up? <laughs> you know what it is, dad? And it's just, um, and even my mom, like, uh, she'll, <laughs> she always tries to, like, bring me little ingredients or little things, like, to, really? like, yeah. Uh, mijo, try this. You need to eat these more. You need to add more fruits in your beers or something. <laughs> she And it's, I, I love that she's just, you know, classic Latina mom. She wants to have her influence in anything that has flavor. Yeah. So, Behind every Chicano is his mom trying to tell him how he can be better. I'm not going to lie, Bob. You're probably right. You're probably right. But I'm going to try it like that. <laughs> John Baron is the assistant brewer at Dos Luces in Denver, where he makes traditional Aztec, Mayan, and Incan drinks distilled with centuries of myth and meaning. He also works with the nonprofit Canned Aid, building skateboards for underserved youth. May Ortega and Quién Are We, the new podcast from CPR News, available everywhere. I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Carla Jimenez. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.